Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you are doing all right wherever you happen to be. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Maya Biniam author of the debut novel, Hangman. My dad, like the narrator in the book, was a political prisoner. He was an organizer in Ethiopia during the 70s when there was a revolution. And he was incarcerated for a while. He was in prison for off and on, but for a total of like three years. And the second time he went to prison, he was arrested with I think it was 60 other people. And then by the time they came out a couple years later, there were only 12 of them left. So there were, there were executions happening pretty steadily throughout his time in prison. Okay, that was Maya Biniam, author of the debut novel, Hangman, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hangman is a wonderful debut novel with a very memorable protagonist. This is a book with a lot on its mind, and yet it's also a book with a narrator who is strenuous in his efforts to say very little about himself. It is a novel about diaspora and refuge, black refuge in particular, what that means and what that doesn't mean. Hangman is about family and cultural divides and what it means to live in a kind of no man's land when no particular place or nation feels quite like home. 
It's also a story about the travel experience, particularly when one is traveling out of country. The idiosyncratic and often funny and exasperating human interactions that are occasioned by those kinds of experiences. This is a very smart, very original debut novel, and I had a great time talking with Maya Binyam. That is coming up in just a bit. Before we get going, a quick reminder that I do an email newsletter once a week. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It is very simple, this newsletter of mine. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the show on a weekly basis, and I also share a handful of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Likewise, if you are interested in joining the Other People Patreon community, I would love it if you would do that. Just head on over to patreon.com slash otherpplpod and help keep this show going into the future. If you like this program, if you listen regularly, join the Patreon community. It's a sliding scale. It's easy. It's affordable for everyone. So check it out over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. So my guest once again is Maya Binyam. Her debut novel, Hangman, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Maya Binyam's work has appeared in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine Book Forum, The New York Times Book Review, Best American Short Stories, and elsewhere. She is currently a contributing editor at the Paris Review and has previously worked as an editor at Triple Canopy and The New Inquiry. She has also worked as a lecturer in the New School's Creative Publishing and Critical Journalism program. I'm very pleased to have had the chance to catch Maya Binyam as she makes this fine debut. So let's get to the conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Maya Binyam, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Hangman. One of the fundamental problems with Boston is that growing up there, you're sort of indoctrinated into the myth that Boston is a major American city. And as soon as you leave, you realize that it's it's not. Like it's kind of an insignificant American city unless you're attached to um, the kind of like Puritan roots of, of the country. But yeah, no, Boston is horrible. It's It's very racist. It's a very segregated city and and yeah, the Puritan roots feels feel like a strong structuring force, even still. And you're not you have no connection to the Puritan roots of Boston. <laughs> uh, like 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 personal family connection, or I don't you know, mean... yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I do. I don't think that I ever uh, related related yeah. to that. Well, yeah, no. I mean, like people are like, oh yeah, you know, my great 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 you know, grandfather came over on the Mayflower or whatever. These people who have these like genealogies that are super deeply connected to like the founding of this, the founding of this country. I'm like, yeah, you know, my great grandparents were like starving and came over on a boat from Sicily. (laughs) Not nearly, (laughs) not nearly so uh, glamorous, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Although it couldn't have actually have been very glamorous. I mean that the kind of like 
myth is glamorous if you don't factor in um, what they did once they got here and probably right. what happened to them. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's like more glamorous if you're a Bostonian, if like, you know, your great, great grandfather hung out with like Ralph Waldo Emerson or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would impress me. There are certainly Bostonians who, who take pride in that. And that's one reason why the city is not fun. <laughs> so you just didn't, did you grow up not liking it? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up always wanting to leave. Like I basically asked my mom desperately to move us to New York from a very young age. Like I, I was a young child who was really obsessed with real estate for some reason and like wanting, I mean, we were always, we were always renters and I, I really liked the idea of, um, of owning a house and of owning a house in, in New York. That was like, that was my dream as an eight year old. And why? So I was, but why? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it was that my parents didn't live together. They kind of broke up before I was born and they lived in very different parts of Boston. And I had a brother who was much older than me. And I think I had this fantasy of a nuclear family who, you know, all all lives together under the same conditions and, and shares a home. And I don't know, I think I think the fantasy of, of suburbia, like I, I didn't want to live a suburban lifestyle. I didn't want to live in a suburban town. I wanted to live in New York City. But the fantasy of the family that attends life in suburbia was one that was strangely compelling to me, especially because a lot of my friends had a bunch of siblings that they lived with, their parents were together. And I think owning, I think I thought if we owned a house or something, that kind of permanence would be available to me. But yeah, I like looked at real estate listings obsessively. And I also would come up with a list of open houses every Sunday um, that were local, that were in Boston. And I would kind of drag my mom along <laughs> to go look at them yeah to go look to go look at the various uh, apartments at age eight yeah so and you're relative i mean you're young so like i'm trying to place you in time when you're doing this is this like the age of like redfin and zillow are you online doing that no i know it wasn't it wasn't that late i this was like if i was eight it would have been the early early 2000s like 2001 2002 um so how was I finding open houses? There were a lot of them in the in the newspaper, like a lot of them would be listed. Um, we got copies of the Boston Globe and there would be listings there. And I do remember at a certain point, I mean, I didn't have a computer until I was 13 or something, but at a certain point, I do remember seeing listings online. But again, that was that was through the newspaper. I don't think I was aware of the the kind of like real estate aggregators that exist now. I don't know when those started. I feel like you should be a realtor. <laughs> well, it's funny because now I, I, I mean, the real estate market is just so sinister. It's just so incredibly sinister. So it's funny that as a child, I kind of viewed it aspirationally. I was like, this will be my, this will be my entrance into the kind of life that I want, which is of course also an American myth. It's like, you know, you buy your home and then everything else proceeds from there. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Things have gotten so crazy. I think that, I mean, yeah. It's hard it's hard to not look back like 40 50 years ago with kind of like a seething envy in terms of like the housing market and oh, how, much, yeah, how much easier totally. it was then totally yeah i mean the way to be able to live now is is to have 
like <laughs> made a decision 40 years ago or like had your, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's intense. I think another thing that conditioned it too, is that my mom and I moved around a lot. Like the longest I ever have lived in a single apartment was two and a half years. And that was the last apartment I had in New York. When I was a kid, we moved basically every two years, if not more frequently. Why? I don't really know. I mean, we moved when I was a baby because my mom got a job in Miami and then we moved back so that I could be closer to my dad and, and his extended family. But I think she liked, I think she liked moving. Like I think she liked packing things up and then resettling into another apartment. I have, um, I have friends, I have friends like this. I have a, yeah. uh, one of my best friends from college, he and his wife, like, it's like, I know it, I know them. So I know by now, like wherever they live, they'll be very excited to move there. They'll get there and I'll be like, okay, give it like two or three years. And they'll be like, yeah, we're, we've decided to pack up and move. They, they basically like go try on a town yeah. and then get sick of it. And they they just yeah. moved, they just moved to Barcelona. It's like amazing to me that they, I mean, they have a child, so they just go in some place, start over with the schools and everything, and then just be like, yeah, we're bored. Bye. Yeah. We're moving. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if I did have more money, I could imagine myself doing something like that. I mean, I have, I have like a, a vexed relationship to it. I think because that's the way I grew up, I sort of de desperately want and seek out permanence. But then as soon as I settle into a place, I get extremely bored. So I don't know. Yeah, I have a I have a little bit of that too. We moved a bit when I was a kid, and I kind of I have two kids, so I'm like I just want them to have a home base. Yeah, trying to make like just I want them to have a place that they can resent when they're older, <laughs> but that they know they know it like really well, you know. Yeah, and a place that they can go back to and and try on their old life probably resentfully but also in moments i imagine that's a comfort i mean and i think i mean my wager and of course everything you know i could be totally wrong but i feel like los angeles is such a big sprawling mess that and it contains so many multitudes that like they can it can absorb whatever path they want to take much more oh, yeah. e much more easily than say you know Milwaukee, where I'm from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm jealous of my friends who grew up uh, or whose parents still live in LA or New York, which, which for me at least are, are, I don't know, they're the American cities that I can see myself most easily, or I can most easily imagine myself living in. And the idea of having family here or there it sounds so nice. Yeah. I mean, because you can like be yourself and then also be the person that you were with your family or whatever. Yeah. And like you can live across town and feel like you live in a totally different place. That's the other right. thing, you know, like you never right. see people. I don't see people who live on the West Side. It's like, <laughs> you yeah. know, you got to really make a plan. So you're growing up in Boston and uh, I always feel like people from Boston, their parents are somehow academics. I think I've heard mm -hmm. that. Is, is that the case for you? No, it wasn't the case for me. I mean, my my mom is from Boston. She grew up in Cambridge and she worked for a long time as an immigration attorney. Um, and then when I was quite young, became an immigration judge. And my dad happened to be resettled in Boston. He came to the States as a refugee and he from uh, from Ethiopia via 
Italy. He applied for refugee status in Rome. But he, I mean, he worked for a long time doing various things. He was a taxi driver. He worked at a convenience store. And then he worked as a bookkeeper in my mom's immigration office when she was an attorney. But then he subsequently became a community organizer and he runs a mutual assistance association that's for other immigrants from Ethiopia. So he helps people find housing and jobs and legal representation and stuff like that. So yeah, neither neither is an academic and they both they both work in immigration but from very very different standpoints. Well, but in yeah, but brainy people because I mean reading this book I'm like, wow, this is a really smart human being. Oh. <laughs> uh, Thanks. And I may be proximity to all these great academic institutions, your parents being Brittany, but I'm always curious. I'm like, well, how did this happen? Like you're very well educated or just like self-educated. You know, sometimes people do it on their own. Like, like, I don't know. I don't know how, I I think it's unfear for me to ask you to diagnose your own intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially because I don't feel, you know, I don't walk around the world feeling smart. Most of the time I feel pretty dumb and that's like that's the feeling I have to contend with but but I did have like a a kind of classically good American education like I my mom my mom and dad also lived in very different parts of Boston but my mom lived in Brookline which has is sort of like famous for its good public schools and I went to Yale for college and through those networks I think met a lot of people and read a lot of things that were very inspiring and helpful to me, but also encountered people who were very, (laughs) both like dumb and also introduced me to things and ways of being that have been unhelpful for my life. Like what? Well, I think the, the, the way that I feel it most clearly is like, especially at a place like Yale, which is, Um, despite being a liberal arts college, very pre-professional in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the students who go there have some sense for what they want to do in the world, or they at least have some sense for their own ambition, even if they aren't sure what exactly they're going to apply it to. And I think a lot of students were encouraged to professionalize their interests even while they were at school. Like extracurriculars are a really big thing at Yale, even more so in many instances than the classes. And a lot of those extracurriculars are are hierarchical and competitive, um, which I found to be kind of ridiculous as a 19 year old who, who mostly just wanted to read and write. But I think nevertheless, I was encouraged and a lot of students who came from places that were not reflected in the culture of Yale, I think we were encouraged to kind of professionalize our interests in and our like very meaningful experiences in the places that we had come from. So I I watched, for example, a lot of African students or students whose parents were from Africa get routed through these extracurriculars, but also a style of learning that turned that turned kind of like a genuine engagement with lived experience into something that could uh, resemble a job. Like I remember when I first got to school, you know, Ethiopian life is something that was very important to me. Like I grew up surrounded by 
Ethiopians, many of whom had come to the States as refugees and were trying to recreate Ethiopian culture in in a city that was kind of fundamentally antagonistic to Black life. And I wanted to carry that out in my life at Yale, and I was kind of confused as to how to do that. And one of the places that I thought I might find other African students was this student group that, and I, I was 18, so I was also like very confused and wide-eyed and searching, but, but kind of the most visible organization, one of the most visible organizations of African students at Yale was um, this Association for African Peace and Development. And you can kind of tell that by the name of the group, it was focused on re the relationship between American and Western governing bodies and and these African countries where a lot of us had come from. And the interests of the group kind of replicated, I think, a sort of neo-colonial relationship between, yeah, between institutions like Yale and and the state and then this place where we were all from, but suddenly we were on the other side of that equation. And yeah, I just found that that like continued to be the case. How long did it take you to catch on? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, was it like from the outside looking in, you were like, ah, oh, or did you join it and then realize once you were in it, like, that Oh no, absolutely. I, it absolutely took me a moment. Like I, I joined and at first I was kind of like, huh, I'm, I'm like different from these other people but I can't really say how, and I don't really feel comfortable, and we're organizing this conference, and I really don't want to participate. Like, I really don't want to do the tasks that I'm being asked to do. And so I felt it at first like that, like a kind of impulsive wanting to withdraw. And then I think it wasn't until later when I found my people mostly in the AFAM studies department and uh, the women's gender and sexuality studies department. It wasn't until I found those people and, and a kind of different approach to, to communing around these ideas that I found animating. It wasn't until then that I was like, oh, that, that is, there are reasons why I felt uncomfortable and they weren't just because I was young or unsure of myself. It was also because I'm kind of fundamentally opposed to communing with other people in that way, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels like I, I would be interested to know about the founding of that little extracurricular group, the one that you're opposed to. You know what I'm saying? Like something tells me it was founded by some white people at Yale. <laughs> you know, it actually wasn't. It was, but it was founded by... I mean, this is a generalization, but I think a lot of the African students that were at Yale and probably at a lot of these other Ivy Leagues were incredibly wealthy. And that's because Yale is not inclined to give financial aid to students who are coming from countries outside of the U.S. Um, and so I think it was a very, I don't know, it was a very wealthy organization, not because the organization itself had money, but because the people who were joining it were for the most part from a very particular subset of people um, with money in the countries that they were from. And there were some, there were some American students in that too, like people who, who had immigrated or were the children of people who had immigrated. So there was, there was kind of, um, I don't know what I perceived to be a kind of tension around class, but I think, th I think that's what it was more than it had been founded by white people. I think it was founded by, 
ruling class. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, the ruling class, essentially. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And so when you're at Yale, you know, you said you wanted to read and write. So that was already present for you. Yeah. Like a literary ambition. But is that what you studied? Um, I studied English and women's gender and sexuality studies. Okay. So yeah. like double major or whatever. Yeah. All right. And then in the acknowledgments of Hangman, you write that uh, your dad's storytelling is why you're a writer. So yeah. like he's maybe not a writer professionally, but is a gifted storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's absolutely a gifted storyteller and he's, he's funny. Sometimes he, he seems like he's a reluctant storyteller. He's not someone who's garrulous. He's not constantly telling stories. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to get stories out of him. Like there, there are times when I want to know something about something that he's gone through or about someone in the family. And I try to ask him directly, but for some reason he doesn't really feel like talking about it. But then in these other moments that I can't really predict these, these kind of amazing stories come out of him as if from nowhere or as if from this sort of like deep well that he has that he's only sometimes willing to dip into. And I found a lot of those stories fascinating when when I was young because the way that he had been raised looked so different from the way that I was being raised. And so it felt like he was, through those stories, kind of constructing an alternate reality that wasn't familiar to me and yet felt like it bore so heavily on how I wanted to live my life. Like it felt like those stories contained meaning and lessons that were really important can, that can you can you like is there an example of a story yeah that's such a that's a good question i mean okay so there are things that are there are stories that are lighthearted, but for the purposes of answering your question the one that's the one that's coming to mind is not lighthearted. but my dad like the narrator in the book was a political prisoner he was an organizer in Ethiopia during the 70s when there was a revolution and he was incarcerated for a while he was in prison for off and on but for a total of like three years and the second time he went to prison he was arrested with I think it was 60 other people and then by the time they came out a couple years later there were only 12 of them left so there were there were executions happening pretty steadily throughout his time in prison. And he doesn't talk about, he doesn't talk about being in prison that much. That feels like something that I can't just kind of ask him. I mean, at this, at this point we've talked about it a lot, so I can ask him about it, but I, I only sort of like caught glimpses of his time there through these small stories he would tell, like, for example, there was one day they were all they were all in one room. And typically when an execution would happen, it would be at night and they wouldn't know who was going to be executed, but they'd all be woken up and, and someone would be taken. And it made on those nights, obviously going back to sleep really difficult and, and sleeping at night in general was really difficult. And at one point, a new prison guard was hired and this prison guard was someone that my dad didn't know 
but that knew uh, someone that my dad was related to. And what's interesting about these stories too is I think a lot of the, maybe our conventional understandings of a prison guard and their relationship to a prisoner, at least in an American context, didn't really hold true. Like I think there was a lot of surreptitious communicating happening between family members outside the prison guards and and the people who were incarcerated. Um, But in any case, this one new prison guard was hired and sort of covertly approached my dad and was like, is there anything I can bring to you? And my dad asked on the nights when, when you're going to be executing someone, can you bring for me and my friend a bottle of liquor? There's this really strong homemade liquor called arake, which is basically like a moonshine. And so, yeah, the prison guard would bring for my dad a bottle of arake. And that's kind of how my dad would know that someone was going to be executed. And as soon as he got it, he and his friends would, he and his friend, one friend would, would drink it in secret so that they were kind of numbed or, or taken elsewhere. And so that's a story, I mean, you know, it doesn't clearly have a a lesson for, for how to be in life, but there's something, I mean, it's, it's a very upsetting story and it's one that I can't quite square with the way that I live my life or the way that my life, my dad lives his life now. That's a, that's a remarkably heavy experience. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it's understandable to me how you, an American-born child with no frame of reference mm-hmm. for any of this, could deeply internalize that. Yeah. Even though the stories about it and the information you receive about it is pretty sparing. You're getting it in bits and pieces. Like, I think there's something to this notion of like genetic or uh, like nonverbal transfer yeah trauma you know the way that this stuff like how can you not feel that within your father even if he isn't verbalizing it like that is not an experience that you wash your hands of that's something that's something you carry with you forever (laughs) yeah yeah and yet it's relationship it's relation to how he is now is unclear to me and that's something that i'm really interested in like it's something that i'm really invested in it's not like he tells a story like that and then it explains clearly why he's acting idiosyncratically in a particular moment. But of course it, it has conditioned how he is in the world and how he is toward me as a father, how he was toward my brother as a father. My, my brother's much older than me and had a very different experience of childhood. So yeah, that, that stuff is kind of endlessly meaningful to me or at least trying to find meaning in it is endlessly meaningful to me. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, so we've kind of set up your novel yeah. a little bit. And you wrote the first draft of it at a residency in, yes. the, in the Adirondacks, I read. Mm-hmm. Like, how long were you there? <laughs> um, I was there for a month. And you wrote an entire first draft of this book in a month. I wrote the first draft. The first draft looked pretty different than this draft. And I spent a long time after that revising it. But yeah, I, I did write the first draft while I was there. Okay. And I'm going to quote you to yourself. I apologize. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I read where you said, right when I was writing the book, I felt like I had started undergoing this preparatory phase to reckon with death. <laughs> yeah. And how old are you? You know, you're you're not even 30. Are you 30? Yeah, I just just turned 30. Okay. You're a baby, uh, (laughs) at least compared to me. So you're reckoning with death at a young age. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it's funny. I, I said that in, in that interview and then I felt afterward, like I wasn't being so accurate. I felt like actually when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking so much about death. I was, I was having a lot of fun in my life and I was feeling a kind of strong life force. Like it was the summer of 2021, people were getting vaccinated. Uh, We didn't yet know that there would be these other variants of COVID, that COVID, it was kind of like in this brief moment when it felt like things were were over and life was just beginning again. So I I felt good and I, I, I actually was like pretty jubilant and not thinking about death, but then I wrote the book And basically, since then, I mean, most acutely in the year after I wrote it, I was thinking intensely about, I don't know, yeah, preparing to experience death, not my own death. I wasn't concerned about that. But, you know, I was in my late 20s. It felt like I was exiting this period of prolonged adolescence and my childhood, which up until that point, I had kind of believed was something I would return to. Like that's kind of the myth of youth, I think, that that you'll always be young. Like that's how everyone treats. Trust me, trust me, it it ends. (laughs) It ends, it ends, it ends. And yet when you're a child, everyone treats your youth as if it's a permanent state. Like that's, that's how people talk about it. And people reference getting older, they reference their own youth. But I think until you've lived long enough, it's like, at least for me, I was like, I'm never, I'm never gonna get old. Like I'll I'll turn probably 25 and that's gonna be it. And then <laughs> right. life will remain the same. So I had this period where I was reckoning with the fact that my childhood, uh, which is really important to me, like it's it's been really conditioning 
um, was not in fact something I was going to return to. And I was also, I'm lucky that my parents are, are alive and in good health. Both of them had parents who died when they were very young. Like my dad was orphaned by the time he was 12. And my mom's mother died when she was 23. So, but I nevertheless, despite knowing that, I think I, I took for granted that my parents would kind of live forever. And there's a lot of death in the book and, and sort of like reckoning with rituals of death and traditions of mourning, some of which I grew up with. But after, yeah. You, you, after mean, you I, mean with respect to the, your, the Ethiopian part of your heritage? Yeah. 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 I mean, on, on my dad's side, I was, I was brought up with these strong rituals around death. Um, typically when someone passes away, their closest family members won't be alerted until they can be surrounded by friends and family who tell them all together. And I witnessed that happening throughout my childhood. Like there's, there's been a lot of death on my father's side of the family and I found those rituals sort of amazing and kind of like incredible feats of empathy. Like I have these memories of uh, people showing up to my dad's house. And this was after he was told that, for example, his brother had died. But after his brother had died, he he sort of needed to host mourners for a month or so, for 40 days. And people would show up to the house every night and they would knock on the door and he would open the door and he would be feeling fine or he would at least have no outward signs of grieving. And then when he opened the door, they would start crying and wailing. And then he was sort of expected to mirror their grief, but they were also mirroring the grief that they presumed that he felt but wasn't <laughs> able to show. Yeah. And I was just upstairs in my room being like, what's going on? I've never seen my dad cry before. I've never seen anyone scream because I was American also. Like, and Americans, I think, are really dumb for the most part about, like, death. Like, they, they many of them, especially in, in secular American groups, like, just don't, don't reckon with it. And so I think I had a kind of private belief that death was just something that happened and then was true and... It was a simple fact of life. I was also, you know, a young kid, so I, I, I hadn't experienced significant loss. But as I got older and, and in this, like, more recent period of my life, I've been feeling like I need to have, I need to have some understanding of death that enables me to feel the presence of people that I've lost or else my life will be very sad in the future and lonely you got to get prepared yeah yeah you got to prepare you got to prepare i'm like how are how is everyone not i mean i know a lot of people do have do have kind of comprehensive understandings of death but i certainly don't and i'm kind of like how are we all not constantly thinking about death <laughs> yeah i agree I, I, i'm on board and uh yeah. <laughs> so where where are you spiritually and like where were you spiritually growing up Growing up, I was a very adamant atheist, which was strange because my mom, I think, identifies as a Quaker and we went to Quaker meeting when I was a little kid, but I didn't, 
I didn't learn much from it. Like, I don't think anyone explained it to me. I just remember being very bored at how quiet it was. And my dad, my dad's side of the family, they're Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. And I, I had a very antagonistic relationship to Christianity in particular. And I remember why as, I don't know. I think I, I think I really believed in myself it, as an individual in the world. And I, I resented, I resented anyone trying to pass down a, a kind of like tradition of belief or principles that had been gleaned from a source that I couldn't identify. Like I had, I had some understanding of a need for like an ethics in the world, but I wanted my ethics to be based on observations that I had made or observations that people close to me had made or like life experience. I didn't want, I didn't want to feel any kind of attachment to an abstract morality, which is also kind of a very American thing too. Yeah. I, yeah, but it was, it was weird. Like I, I would get into screaming arguments with my cousins, for example, who were older than me and very adamant that I believe in, in God um, and go to church and, and stuff like that. And I was just very, I was very resistant to that. Yeah. I didn't have screaming fights with my cousins, not because I necessarily didn't want to, but just they lived far away. But yeah. I had a similar, I had a very similar, just like, like what's the word? Like inherent resistance from, yeah. a, from a young age. And it's just like, don't tell me, I got to figure this yeah. out. <laughs> like I got to yeah. get this, I got to yeah. get this on my own. And I, and also yeah. I just wasn't buying it. Like something in me was like, I don't buy this. Yeah. This doesn't make sense to me. You know, like yeah. I, or like maybe it does, but like I, you got to explain it better. And nobody could explain it to me in a way that made sense. And so I was just yeah. like, yeah, it's not for me. Yeah. Well, it's hard also. I, I guess it, it is kind of like, I don't mean this in the derogative sense, but like it is also like a childish position. Like I, I remember being a kid and like wanting to be taken seriously and not wanting to be told what to do. And maybe my reaction to religion was part of that. But also my parents you know, despite the fact that my mom took us to Quaker meeting and my dad was nominally Christian, they didn't, they didn't raise me with any kind of religious principles. Like my dad, you know, my dad was a, he was a socialist organizer who I think fundamentally believed that religion was the opium of the masses, at least at a certain point in his life. And I learned recently too, that his grandfather, um, or sorry, his, his father, his father's family was, they were Ethiopian Jews who were sort of forced into conversion, practiced in secret, and then subsequently kind of gave up their religion to be part of the ruling class. So it's just, it's all like all of the traditions that I, that I kind of inherited are all mixed up. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I think a lot of people wouldn't realize that they're Ethiopian Jews. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I have a friend in Israel who lives in Israel who adopted some Ethiopian Jewish kids. She's Jewish, and that was I was like, wow. And she explained it all to me. But yeah, there's yeah. a Jewish tradition in e in Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know much about it. I'm curious to learn more about it. But yeah. All right. So death obsessed. Yeah. And you have landed in this novel on a very particular, very unique voice 
It's unlike anything I've read. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's something about this book that's sort of singular, like this narrator and this style of narration just feels uh, really specialized. <laughs> and there's something mysterious about it. It's kind of it's one of those books that you have to, it sort of teaches you how to read it as you go. Mm. And it's a mystery in some sense. Like there's a, that's part of what makes the narrative propulsive is trying to sort out like A, what is going on, B, who this guy is. But from a craft perspective, I wanna hear you talk about how you landed on this voice. Mm. Because it feels like, and I know, I think from poking around a little bit and reading some of the other interviews that you've done, that, you know, for example, there's no metaphor in this narration. There's no metaphor in this book. So there are rules that you imposed upon yourself as a writer that help to deliver the effect of this narrator and this narration. So, and I also think I read that you had spent a lot of time experimenting with this voice, maybe in short stories or other projects or, you know, novels that didn't make it all the way to publication. So this is not something that you just landed on, uh, you know, up in the Adirondacks on day one of the residency. This is something you were cultivating for a long period of time. And then finally in this book, you realized it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the voice was something that was intensely familiar to me. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, when I was writing this draft, what was surprising to me was not necessarily how the voice developed, although that did happen too. The voice did did change as I was writing. Um, but it was more like I knew the voice really well, so then I could put the narrator in circumstances that were unfamiliar to me or that were surprising to me, and I could kind of watch watch him move um like his style of of observation was very familiar to me his sense of humor why uh, why yeah i mean it's 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 difficult to answer this question because producing a voice or becoming familiar with a voice is such a strange process it's like the narrator's voice isn't my voice and yet trying to figure out how it came to be feels like trying to figure out how, how my voice came to be. Although I probably have a better sense for his voice than I do my own. But yeah, as you said, I had been writing stories in his voice for many years and he wasn't always the same character. He, he generally had the same slim biographical background, but I wrote about him in other periods of his life and so that helped to refine the voice a lot. Like I was going back and reading recently my thesis from college, my creative writing thesis, which was in a voice that I tend to think of as an earlier iteration of the voice that exists in this novel. Um, is, he, is, is he a proxy for your father in I some mean, way? He, he is in some ways. I think he began that way. Like, I think I first started writing in this voice probably, it must have been 10 years ago at this point, I found a diary that my father had written. It was a travel diary, which took place over the course of, I think it was five or six days uh, while he was visiting his estranged brother uh, in Israel. His brother had likewise, my, my dad found refuge in the States, his brother had found refuge in Israel, and they hadn't seen each other for a long time. And my dad wrote this diary and you know like most travel diaries it described moving through the airport finding a visa getting a taxi settling into a hotel and then doing 
kind of like touristy things with this companion who he hadn't seen in a very long time. And at the end of the diary, he describes something that happened on that trip, which was kind of shocking to him. And, and reading it, reading it when I found it and reading it subsequently, it strikes me still that the events leading up to that moment or the, the kind of um, diary entries leading up to that moment, when you, when you read them in light of what happens at the end, it feels like they're all mounting toward it, even though, of course, my dad couldn't have known what was, what was going to happen at the end of his trip. Um, Wait, may I ask what happened or is it too yeah, much to ask? No, it's a, yeah, I can, I can talk about it. Um, basically, oh, I mean, this is such a long story. Um, or the thing, the thing that happened is, is so complicated by like events that have, that have occurred across many years. But at the end of the trip, he realized that his brother was homeless. He was, he was squatting in, uh, the like garbage room of an apartment building. And his brother is someone who has a kind of strong mythology around him. Like he was, when they were growing up in Ethiopia, they grew up in a, in a remote town in the north of the country. And his brother had a kind of intense like linguistic prowess. He was fluent in English from a very young age, whereas most people won't, weren't. And he was, you know, there, there was a socialist revolution and he was very young when that happened. And he became a really compelling political organizer who organized, organized all of his fellow students and was a really sharp reader and would go into the mountains to recite these speeches that he would give in English to the people that he was organizing. And he subsequently disappeared and was, I think by virtue of his age, really transformed by the experience of fleeing the country and being on his own. Whereas my dad was of course transformed by that too, but he was a bit older. He was in his early twenties when he left. And listen, he had yeah. been through hell in prison. Immigration yes. was no big, no big deal compared by comparison. You yes. know? Like, yeah, totally. I can figure, I can figure out Boston, you know, like, totally. right. Totally. But his younger brother was like 16 when he fled the country on a tractor and lived in a refugee camp in Sudan and then lied about being Jewish so that he could go to Israel. And then, you know, just a lot of, a lot of stuff bad stuff happened to him in the process of that. And so I think going to Israel and seeing that, which is already like a very intense place, like it's it's a site of intense colonial occupation. My father had organized with Palestinians when he was in Ethiopia. And now he realized that his brother who had this kind of immense prowess and like political savvy was living in a trash room and I was obviously like compelled by his writing in that diary for many reasons, but I think I started, I mean, I started at that point, I initially wrote something that was more closely based on that diary and then started writing things that were in a similar kind of voice about different situations and about different stories that I had heard 
and the voice through that process changed. The voice now sounds very different from the voice that I encountered in that diary. Even though I can track some of the seeds of it there, it's very different now. And it does more closely mimic my own voice and things that I have gleaned through reading. Um, it's like a strange, I don't know, it's a strange amalgamation of, of influences. Um, yeah, but that, tra- that tracks it nicely. That tracks yeah. it nicely. And I think that, you know, being uh, just like, you know, there's one generation between you and all of these really dramatic and traumatic yeah. experiences. And yet your existence feels very far away from all that, right? Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm going to pose this as a question. I'm imagining it to be true, but if it's not, you know, feel free to uh, correct me. But it's like, there's this, there's this element of mystery at work in your book. It feels like, what's going to happen? What, mm-hmm. what happened? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Who is this guy? You know, mm-hmm. what is this history of his? Mm-hmm. And you as a child and you as a young woman, like growing up in such close generational proximity mm-hmm. to all of this stuff, and yet getting it piecemeal. Yeah. And maybe you took tra- you travel back to Ethiopia, so you have experience on the ground there, and you've met mm-hmm. family there and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So it's not a total... Mm-hmm. blank slate but it feels like somebody like knowing this now it feels like you're kind of searching for your your yourself and your past yeah and trying to kind of like piece together how you formed right I mean right right yeah and also I think I'm I'm trying to forge connections which I feel like to to this other world which feels difficult to access and yes and yet it feels foundational to kind of who I am and yet everything in the way that I live my life sort of disincentivizes connection to it I feel like it's something that requires a kind of constant purposeful maintenance I think through through these stories like I said I've gleaned and feel another way of living that's really important to me and that I think is both produced by negative political forces in the world and 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 yet is also eroded by them constantly. Like I think my my sort of inherited memory of, of what's happened, um, it feels very important to me to carry that out into the way that I live my life. And yet it's very difficult. Like that's very difficult work. I'm not really able to live my life in a way that embodies what I've I've inherited. And so I think writing is is a way to kind of forge those connections, for me at least. Like that's that's kind of the personal the personal stuff behind it. Which doesn't mean that that's how other people will read the book, obviously. But yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the we kind of for people listening who haven't had a chance to read, sort of touched on the idea that this voice that you're writing in is very unique, 
and that this narrator is sort of mysterious. But to give kind of like a broad strokes overview of the plot, we have the narrator who is writing in the first person, sans metaphor. What are the other rules? You know, there's no uh, proper nouns. Yeah, no proper nouns. There, there are a few proper nouns, but they're, I don't, I don't think they're ever voiced by the narrator. They're in some emails that he gets from his brother. His brother names like America as a place. But Oh, right, 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 right. So very sparing, though. Yeah. And so he is, in the beginning of the book, like basically put on an airplane <laughs> and is flying back to a country that he has left. It seems like he's leaving America and going back to some place. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm retrospectively imagining it as Ethiopia based on the research that I did in preparation yeah. for this conversation. But yeah. it could be any, you know, it could be somewhere else. Yeah. And he's going back to visit his brother who is ill and possibly dying. That's the, that's the basic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so in terms of the way that you are telling the story, uh, something that you said was, that struck me was that uh, you said, I was interested in how much you can diminish the first person while still utilizing it. Mm. That, that kind of crystallized it a little bit for me mm. because this is a book that when you read it, especially I think if you're a writer, you read it and you start to like take it apart and be like, how did, how did she do this? You know, And that's kind of what you were up to. Like you're telling a story in the first person, but you're not revealing the things that a first person narrator typically reveals. Mm-hmm. Like there are some things obviously that you're revealing, but mm-hmm. it's very calculated. And it creates this very odd effect. Yeah. Like, can you talk about why? Like, like I guess it mirrors, like you said, a lot of the storytelling that you grew up with, which was sort of elliptical, mm-hmm. right? I mean. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely elliptical. I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting too that in people's readings of the book, like, the two the two things that they most frequently bring up are the sort of like idiosyncrasies of the voice and the singularity of the voice in tandem with the kind of like vacantness of his, uh, not of his personality. Like, I think we get a good sense for his personality, um, but in terms of, yeah, the biographical details that explain why he is the way he is or why he is where he is. And I think that was really interesting to me, like conjuring the idea of conjuring a personality through voice, through a style of observation, through the ways that he interacts with the various strangers and family members that he encounters, but to sort of parcel out biographical details so that they could act, yeah, somewhat mysteriously on on his personality and way of being. But I think narratively, I mean, that, that was kind of like the personal challenge to me, but I think narratively, there is a reason for, for why he is the way he is. I think that he is someone who is really attached to his sense of self as it's been conditioned by life in the country where he's found refuge. I tend to think of seeking refuge as an individuating process. It's something that's premised on belonging to collective life. If someone wants to um, be granted refuge, at least in the US, they need to argue that they face persecution um, because of their belonging to some collective in almost every instance. Um, But nevertheless, actually finding refuge and saving your life requires breaking apart from that collective And I think that process, when it's combined with life in America, yeah, can be can be extremely individuating and and can lead to 
a warped conception of self in which in which you begin to believe that by virtue of of having found refuge in America you are resourced and and healthy or have access to the things that that could enable healing and i think the narrator has really bought into that like he thinks of himself as someone who has more life available to him he has he thinks a stable income he has uh, access to medicine even though throughout the text he's struggling to find his blood pressure medication and he's also very resistant to embracing a lot of the associations that are typically ascribed to his home country in diaspora um, like he knows that his country is typically seen by people in diaspora or by Americans as under-resourced, as a site of poverty and hunger and neediness. And that's all localized in his relationship with his brother, um, who makes kind of near constant asks for money, for food, for medicine. And he, he doesn't want, you know, he wants to go back to his home country and be embraced by the collective. Like he, he wants a kind of welcoming return, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to associate with, 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 uh, or he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to accumulate the associations that he's like distanced himself from. And I think because of that, yeah, he's like, he's really, he really bars himself against other people. He doesn't make himself vulnerable to the stories that they're telling him or to the experiences that they've gone through. And so by virtue of that, yeah. But but he's also open to them. Yeah. Like there's 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 like a wonderful kind of uh almost comedic openness. Yeah. Cuz this is this is something we should say we haven't said this yet. This is a funny book. Yes. Yeah. Like there is humor in this book yeah. and it's but it's an odd humor. It's like a very offbeat humor. Yeah. Uh do you agree? Yes, I do agree. <laughs> okay. I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I say that as, uh, as, you know, it's high praise. I love, like, I love it when somebody's, like, making me laugh in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, also kind of like an absurdist quality to the humor because it this novel, plot-wise, as this guy is on this journey back to his native country to visit his brother, is a succession of encounters with people of a variety of different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. you know, like missionaries, uh, yogurt salesmen, you know, just people he runs into, you know, and Mm -hmm. will have these like fairly deep exchanges with. And he's kind of, he's wide open in a sense. I mean, he's not going to do everything everybody wants him to do. I mean, this guy's not a complete pushover. Right but he will engage, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, no, he's open. He's like, I will pause my day in order to hear your story. And at the same time, he often hears these people's stories and he's like, "Ugh, I can't believe they're talking. Like, I can't believe another person is talking to me and telling me their story, which has nothing to do with what I'm experiencing. Um, and yet he is, he is very open to those stories because he's very polite. He's a very polite person who's really obsessed, I think, with the conventions of respectable behavior. And I think he's so obsessed with those conventions that they can be kind of empty. I think they, they kind of serve as an excuse for him not to reveal information about himself. But I also think his obsession with those conventions produces a lot of the humor. Like there's a scene pretty early on in the book when he's trying to take a shower 
but there's a pigeon in the bathroom. <laughs> right. And he, he, instead of like trying to find another bathroom, instead of trying to get the pigeon to fly out of the window, he's like, I'm going to shower and I'm going to keep the water splashing in my personal shower zone so that the pigeon isn't disturbed because I don't know if the pigeon likes water, if the pigeon doesn't like water. I don't want to make the pigeon angry. Like, like all of that, I think, is produced from his desire to be polite, like even to a, even to a pigeon. Right, right. There's something, that's part of his charm, you know, yeah. part of his charm. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people who read this book describe it as like dreamlike or fantastical almost. Yeah. And yet you have said that this feels very realistic to you. <laughs> yeah. And okay. And so I read that. I was like, oh, this is like she was coming at this. It's interesting to me that as the author of this novel, you were coming at it and feeling not like you were writing some fantastical allegorical like this is something that's very rooted in the real for you. And then I started to reflect a little bit on times that I have traveled, in particular when I have traveled internationally, where you're outside of your native country, you're in a new place, new culture, you're in that state of disorientation that goes along with being an international traveler. And on that level, what this guy goes through, especially as a solo traveler, it's different maybe if you're traveling with a companion or with a family or something, but when you're on your own and you're traveling as an American in say, like somewhere in Africa, like there are gonna be a succession of these encounters with people. You are gonna, you do run into people who you would ordinarily not run into. And I do think that international travel, unless you're like super paranoid or something, doesn't force upon you a kind of openness that does not exist within you in your native country because it's your it's your everyday right you're not yeah. walking around you're not you know the little shorthand you might have with the barista at the coffee shop that's one thing but then you know you're in ethiopia or you're in israel or something and yeah it's a different context and it's a different exchange yeah yeah i mean i do think it happens though even if you're not a tourist, like if you're going back to a place that you haven't been in for a really long time, I think I at least have experienced that openness. I mean, I've witnessed it in my dad when we have gone back to Ethiopia. We were just there in March and he'll walk around a neighborhood and be like just looking to run into someone he knows, someone that he hasn't seen in a really long time. And that's a very funny way of approaching the world like to just go on a walk and just be hoping that you'll find someone you know but i recently last week i was in new york and i hadn't been in new york for six months or something and i found myself kind of doing the same thing like i was walking around my old neighborhood just you know being like well i hope i hope i run into someone and i was on the lookout and i didn't really run into any well i did run into some people um but it's the same it's the same kind of feeling like that same fundamental openness of of looking at strangers and, and thinking, do I know you? Did I used to know you? Are we going to interact right now? Am I going to like, you know, like, like, I think you, yeah, I think it, it's, it's something that's produced by like leaving a place and then going back also. Yeah. I don't know. I was just back in like where, you know, in Indiana where I went to high school, 
And I was sort of nervous that I was going to run into somebody. Yeah. I hadn't been back in a long time. I was just like in the grocery store, like, keep your head down. <laughs> Don't look at anyone. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the other side of it. There, It can produce like a kind of euphoria where you're like, I could know anyone here. Or sometimes it's deeply scary. <laughs> you don't know who you're going to run into, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, speaking of being in a defensive posture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, th there is the aspect of the book where you're not naming place and you're purposefully not mm -hmm. naming place. And I think you said that you didn't want this to be a book that could be read sociologically. Yeah. And my, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting choice because if you were really explicit from the jump that this was like an Ethiopian refugee, naturalized citizen in America returning to Ethiopia, that changes this novel considerably. Yeah. It changes the read considerably because the read as it stands is we don't really fully know. We, right. we, can, guess, we can guess, but it's never really spelled out. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I did do, you know, I did research for this novel. Um, or maybe not research that I intended to go into this novel, but research that I was otherwise doing in my life, which of course informed it, um, like research into the Red Terror, which was this period when um, there was a military coup uh, by a group called the Derg uh, that subsequently took control of Ethiopia and, and killed um, something like 500,000 Ethiopians and Eritreans. And that was the period during which my dad was, was in prison and that combined with stories that I've been told by him, by other family, by friends, that, have, that definitely informs the history that's kind of threaded throughout the novel. But I found that a lot of books that are published in the States that describe histories in other countries, especially histories in, in Africa, in, in places that were colonies, I think they tend to be, those te those books are sometimes read as if they enable access to, to experience. And what I've found in trying to write about that time and in trying to learn about that time, which is a personally significant time, language, you know, learning facts about that time certainly helped me understand what was happening, but they don't enable me to access what people I love went through. Like those experiences I think are fundamentally mysterious to me and language always fails at representing them. Um, and I'm very interested in that failure. Language is the tool that I have by virtue of the fact that I'm a writer. It's, it's the tool that I have to try to access memory and experience, but it always fails to conjure it. Like you can never really go back um, and some language pretends to enable access to experience, but I'm much more interested in language and in storytelling that that confronts that failure. And so I think while I was writing, yeah, I did sort of initially write somewhat defensively, as you mentioned, um, but then I also became interested in how a place might be conjured, not through the shortcuts of a proper noun, which anyway depend on um, depend on associations that can't be controlled. Like when I say Ethiopia, I probably think of something very different than what a lot of other people think of, including other Ethiopians. And so, yeah, I was interested in, in how to conjure a place through the various associations that people had with it, which is why well, I found, yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I'm speculating, but I have to believe this is true, that as somebody who is Ethiopian-American growing up and telling people, you know, I have family roots in Ethiopia, the American conception, I mean, Americans are so inward looking and yeah. like, so what's the word? Like non-globe, most Americans anywhere, most are, are very, uh, they don't have a global perspective and yes. haven't done a ton of traveling yeah. usually. And so you tell somebody you're Ethiopian American, everyone's like, we are the world. I mean, like there's these popular, yes. it, must, yeah. Yeah. it must get so frustrating yeah. Because that's like such a minimizing way to look at it, right? Yeah, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. And it's also interesting. I don't know. I mean, or I don't know if it's my life would probably be better if, if I wasn't thinking about that. But that's the life that I live in which all of those associations that people have are kind of folded into the fabric of of my everyday life so i do think about, i do think about it like I, I think about those associations that people make even if i am incredibly frustrated by them and and view them negatively have you ever seen bob dylan in the we are the world have you ever seen that meme of bob dylan no. he's so miserable it's one of the funniest things you'll ever see but like google it when you okay, get a chance i will because he's like not even singing he's just like standing there he looks like he's on something i mean it's it's actually people has I like have people returned to that moment like have people written about we are the world they must have I mean I'm sure somebody has yeah. but I grew up with it I mean I was a, I, I remember it when I was yeah. a kid the whole thing and it was like we got to save the Ethiopians there's this famine and like the kids and you know it was a it was a real cultural moment and I yeah. think that song and all those I mean Michael Jackson was there and he okay. was everything at that point and mm -hmm. you know so but yeah. For most Americans, that was literally the only time that they had thought about Ethiopia. That's their only experience of it, you know? And so that's pretty, in the grand scheme of things, that's not much. No. No, and yet for for a lot of people, it's everything. Like that. that's enough to conjure an entire nation. Right. Which is pretty crazy. But, but yeah. that's, how, that's how these things work. And I'm, I am interested in that and like, how nations get constructed from afar, from like seemingly slim details, which anyway have been warped by various like entertainment and political forces, but nevertheless, an entire place gets constructed sort of like in the image of those details. And that's, that's like, that's fascinating to me. Well, yeah, I mean, like that's, this is all narrative at some point, right? These are all just stories yeah. we're telling each other. like we are the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it works and it works every which way. Like think about all the cultural exports that the United States sends around the world that informs people's perspective of what this place is. Yeah. Like there are a lot of people living abroad who think of the United States and it's like, well, everyone's living like it's Beverly Hills 90210 or, you know, whatever well, it yeah. is. You know? I mean, even for people who are living here, like, like the, the, myth of American exceptionalism is so strong that people I think aren't even like noticing that there are tons of potholes in their streets and they don't have access to, I mean, I think the people who don't have access to healthcare, like, like we know that, but it's like horrible. It's horrible here. Life is horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. It's not an easy place to be no. unless you're, unless you're like in the 1%, in which yeah. case everything, everything's great. <laughs> right. Know? Right. And for everybody else, it's like, Hey, you know, we can't even get a, I can't get my teeth fixed. Yeah. Ugh. So it's it's got its problems, but I uh, 
I want to talk to you about your emotional experience of this, of writing this novel, mm. because you said that you wrote it unemotionally and then became affected by it after the fact. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was having a lot of fun while I was writing the novel, even while I was writing the parts of the novel that get pretty sad. I was just, I was, in, I was enjoying my time a lot and things in life were good. And then after I wrote it and then after I edited it a bit and the editing was done and the book was done, I did, I did become pretty, I don't know. I was confused. I wasn't sure if I was depressed or if I was just like extremely emotional in a negative way, but I did for a long time after I finished editing the book. I was upset. I was really upset. And about what? About, about, well, a lot of things, anything would make me upset, but, but especially stories about death and dying or stories about people who feel like they had, uh, had encountered ghosts or like ghosts or felt the presence of, of someone who had passed those stories didn't used to be so compelling to me, like stories about life after death or, yeah, or feeling the presence of, of dead people somehow. Um, but after I wrote the book, I was really compelled by those stories and also affected by them, even though they weren't sad stories that people were telling. Oftentimes they were, oftentimes they were, they were happy stories. And I guess moving to LA, <laughs> I'm realizing that maybe people in LA that I'm encountering are more inclined to talk about ghosts than, yeah. than people <laughs> in New York. Um, I feel like I was hearing these stories a lot. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was very, I was very sad. I was very sad hearing about death. I, I don't know. It sounds, it sounds kind of silly now, but I was often having these nights where I was just like so emotional. Like I was crying. I cried so much in the year after I finished editing this book. I feel like I've emerged from it now, but, and it was hard to articulate what I was crying about, but it, it. Yeah. What were you crying about? Well, oh, it's hard. It's hard to, um, it's hard to describe it without, I guess, giving away the novel, but the novel does deal with the demise of various characters who feel to me like they relate in some way to people that I know and that I care about. And writing the book in that way, I think just made me very emotional because I was confronting losses that um, I know that I am not experiencing now, but I know I will in the future. Um, and so it made those future losses feel very present and as if they were happening. Yeah, just in, in the present moment. And that was difficult. And then feeling the disjuncture between like, you know, between a belief that people close to me had died already while also just like living in the normal world while they were still alive. I don't know. It was just, it was very weird. It was very like preemptive, preemptive grieving. Yeah. Yeah. That's, ex that's exactly, that's exactly what it was. And it was very hard to describe that to other people because nothing was wrong. <laughs> yeah. You're like, just give me a moment. I'm going through a rehearsal of <laughs> yeah. future trauma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I get that. I think that's actually kind of healthy. 
And maybe yeah, that's, maybe, maybe. I mean, you write into the, I mean, a lot of artists, you know, you work into these places yeah. where you have concerns and I get it. I mean, I totally relate to that because yeah. I've always been sort of death obsessed. I mean, like what else is there really? Like what's what going on? There? We're going to die. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Like how are you, how are you carrying on with your like day to day? It can seem pretty silly. Yeah. In the, fa in the face of all that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think about that too much. Like once I go there or if I even start thinking about like, uh, like other planets, like, you know, you just like, you can't think too big. I find it really difficult. Like if I start thinking about the solar system or something while I'm trying to send an email or like make myself coffee or like go hang out with a friend, it just like, it just derails everything. It's, uh, it's overwhelming. So <laughs> wait, you said you were a, a staunch atheist as a child. Where are you spiritually now? I'm spiritually very open um, at this particular as, as any good Los Angelino should yes. be. I mean. <laughs> yeah, um, but but I'm still very confused. I, I definitely don't identify as an atheist, and I I I don't know. I I think my life will be fuller if I'm able to feel not necessarily a particular kind of belief, but access to. I don't know, forms of like communication and structuring time that aren't that aren't like dependent on the work week and what's in front of me. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I. I don't know, and I've been I've been kind of like seeking that out by. I don't know, like reading about Buddhism, going to I've, who are you re who are you reading? Um, I have a where is it? Uh, what's his name? Thich Nhat Han. Yeah, that's yeah. my guy. I love yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. I'm really just dipping in, but yeah, and I've gone to some psychics as 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 one does as one does in LA, and also just like I don't know, I like psychedelics. Like I I, I don't know. There I I've just been trying to like seek out seek out ways to uh to like experience time differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. How often are you doing psychedelics? Not that often. I actually, I did, um, the last time I did mushrooms was like a few months ago. And the time before that, when I did them was in the fall, when I was sort of intensely in that place I was describing where I was preemptively grieving. And that was like a horrible experience. <laughs> it was good. It was good. But also it just intensified that so much. You crying a lot? I was crying so, so much. I was crying a lot. I felt like I was revisiting my childhood. I mean, probably to anyone who listens to this, they'll be like, this woman sounds like an idiot. And and it, talking about talking about experiences, taking drugs can feel like so idiotic. And then when you're in the experience, it feels like true and important. Um, well, talk, talk about like resistant to narration, you know, <laughs> like it's really hard to language those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe best not to, though, I, there is like good, good uh, drug writing, I'm sure. Somewhere. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it all makes sense to me. Yeah. I, mean, okay. I think it's a, I think it's healthy behavior, yeah. you know, and I think it's like, I think it's honest behavior to be grappling with this stuff and to be open but confused. Yeah. Like what other posture is there? You like, I will, I'm always down with that where I start to get uneasy is when someone's like, I got it. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure? Like, I yeah. think there, I mean, I think some people got it better than others. Yeah. But I think there should always be like some 
healthy sliver of, and it's a mystery and we yes. just don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I always ask people on this show, uh, before we part company, if they are working on anything else, Ugh. is there another book in the works? Um, not in the works at the moment. I, I'm sort of anticipating one being in the works soon. Hopefully if I can, if I can make that perfect alchemy happen or else like try to eke it out of, out of imperfect conditions. But yeah, I, I do hope to work on another, on another novel and continue with, um, nonfiction writing. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. It's been so nice to meet you too. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Maya Beniam, author of the novel, the debut novel, Hangman. It is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find Maya Beniam on the internet at mayabeniam.com. Follow her on social media. She's on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, I would love it. If you did that, you can do so over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter. And if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Rate it, review it. It helps the show in the algorithm. It helps it in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, if you want some other people apparel, just head on over to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. They're good t-shirts. They're soft. I wear them all the time. I really do. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Available now in trade paperback and ebook and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. Whatever you like. If you want to read my book, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and I share a clip, an outtake, from a good episode from years past. And then on Sunday, there will be another episode, but I don't know who the guest is going to be quite yet. I'm still working it out. This is a fluid operation. It's a fluid process, this podcast. So I'm going to leave things there. It's a cliffhanger. Stay tuned.